The following message was recorded at a Warhorn Media event. For more information, please visit warhornmedia.com. And welcome to the Reformation. Well, it's a privilege for me to speak with you, and we're so glad that you're here. Uh, it's a joy to get to know some of you and to have the conversations we're having. And uh, it's a joy to have had and to have Toby here. And uh, there you are. And uh, following him today has its advantages and disadvantages. Uh, obviously, the advantage is that he's just laid an excellent foundation for everything that anyone would want to follow with. The disadvantage is that now I can't use any of my life experience cross-country illustrations. (laughs) Why are you laughing, Jay? I didn't do a 5K, I did a uh, 5M. Is that the meter? That's not further, is it? I don't know. Thank you very much, Toby. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you will be with us now and that in your mercy you will show us things that we need to see and change us. Make us to be useful to you. Oh, Lord, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. When it comes to conflict... Among the sheep, we have to be faithful. Last night, Toby spoke about the tension that God assigns to us in conflict. And I had already planned on talking about, as an introduction, one place where our society rejects this tension, and that is in the gospel itself. And as an illustration, I would use a scene from an old Star Wars movie, the second old Star Wars movie. None of you have seen Star Wars, probably. But the second old Star Wars movie where Luke Skywalker is on the planet with Yoda, the little green uh, whatever, and uh, Muppet, yes. And uh, his um, space vehicle is sunk into the waters of the swamp, and and Yoda encourages him to raise it up using the force. And so we have that scene where, where Luke says, I'll try, right? And Yoda says, what? Boy, that's horrible. I can only walk this way. So Yoda says, what? Do or do not, there is no try, right? It's the most famous line from from maybe the whole series. Do or do not, there is no try. And then what happens is Luke tries, and he tries the way we would see the failure being, and that is you see him struggling, straining, to get the, and the vehicle's kind of coming up, right? And then, of course, Yoda's just embarrassed for him, and, oh, I have to do everything. And so then he does the thing where he raises it up, and you see him there, Yoda, right? And the vehicle floats down, and then Yoda, Yoda kind of looks like, you know, he had just had a, a nice bottle of Sprite on his lawn chair, you know, <laughs> refreshed. Well, what's the point in, in saying this? Um, This is the essence of the American evangelical gospel today. The Yoda gospel. Right? No tension. You are just seated in the heavenlies and there's to be no thought of struggle, no thought of tension, no thought of conflict within you. Nothing. And if you work your way back, this is how I've I process is working my way back from the idea of assurance of salvation. How does our evangelical gospel, that Yoda gospel, deal with assurance of salvation? Believe. There is no try. There is no struggle. Believe. You're seated in the heavenlies. Everything's wonderful. Don't even think about. You have a negative thought. Don't even think about that thought. 
There's no tension, no fight, no fear and trembling. This is not how those who have gone on before us received assurance of their salvation. This is not how it was done. It was done through kneeling, through going off to the side by themselves to pounding their breasts and saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus says that that tax collector went away, what? Justified. Justified. He had the dignity, what Toby called the dignity of guilt. Right? He was wrestling with his sin. And those who went before us were justified because they spent years before God wrestling with their sin and again confessing their sin and again finding a heavenly father who was the father from whom all fatherhood got its name, who was not like us earthly father, we earthly fathers being evil. He was the heavenly father who gave us the instruction to follow his example to forgive 70 times seven, to not put a cap on it. And he's the heavenly father that they found on their knees beating their breasts and saying, have mercy on me. And they're thinking to themselves, again, it's again, he's going to have mercy on me. Will he do it again? And as they find him faithful and faithful, and as they are sincerely repenting and confessing and calling him to save them and sanctify them and forgive them, God is faithful. And so as they get older and progress to older age, they find out that lo and behold, where they thought they were uh, 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 they had fallen short of the glory of God. When they were younger, they thought they had fallen short of the glory of God and and they were beating their breasts. They realized as they're older that they had fallen short of the glory of God and they were beating their breasts, but they were all the more assured of of God's salvation on their lives because he had shown them his consistent willingness to receive the one who's penitent and who would confess and who would humble themselves before him. This illustrates the work that's before us. Because the work that's before us is, as, as Toby said, we've, we've marinated in this culture. Even the gospel itself is contaminated. And so what are we going to do? They've said that there can be no tension. And here we are, a group of pastors, and what we realize is that we're supposed to bring the battle to the battle. We're supposed to bring the fight. And the last thing anyone wants to do is have anything like that in their lives. So what do we end up doing? Well, we end up having to go and meet people, and rather than than build on their terms, we have to say no. So the first thing we do in the fight is we have to clear the field. We have to clear away all of the debris and all of the dirt until we find them down. We, we just clear and clear and clear and clear because we've got to build something and we have to build it on something solid. So we have to clear down to bedrock. And the bedrock is everything we have to do. And, and this part of it is uh, endless. Endless. We have to clear down to bedrock so that we can start to build. And those who have the Holy Spirit have ears to hear. And they will hear what we say, and they will see what we're doing, and God's Holy Spirit will be working on their lives, and with the, with the, the work of his word through the Holy Spirit, they will say, yes, that is true. And they'll say, amen. And we can begin the work. But it's so, it is so pervasive that it, it affects every part of us, every part of us. I knew I was speaking after lunch today, and so I thought, how can I help everyone to process through what I'm going to say? So I thought I would make some phrases that would go with uh, the, the points I want to make. I'm sorry, they sound like Jeopardy categories. 
Okay. But here we go. The first one is, do you see what I see? So you can start by thinking about... uh, you, what comes into your mind is that little Christmas song. You know, Do you see what I see? There's a quote by Henry Thoreau that says, and you know, not my hero, just so you know. He says, it's not what you look at that matters, it's what you see. It's not what you look at that matters, it's what you see. Well, we have to be trained in seeing. We don't see, and we must be trained in seeing. So one of the ways that we don't see, or one of the reasons we don't see, is, that, is because we're incapable of seeing. We don't see the problems that are in our church because we're incapable. Sometimes people will hear about work that we're doing here in our church pastorally, and you may have had this same thing happen with you. They'll hear about work that we're doing in our church, and they'll look at you, and they'll kind of shake their heads in a, in a sympathetic way. It must be difficult to have those kinds of problems in your church. Is that because you're so, so close to a university that you would have such sins? And I'm, and I'm thinking about what they're saying, and, I, and I, I know what's in their church. But they don't see it because they don't have eyes to see, because they are incapable, they have not been trained Their senses have not been trained. And so Hebrews 5 says, in in the writer, in saying, talking about Melchizedek, he says, concerning him we have much to say, but it's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. You have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. But solid food is for the mature who, because of practice, have their senses trained to discern good and evil. So Christian leaders all over this country walk around with no training in their senses. None. They are immature. It's all about milk. And as they walk around, they don't see anything that could be seen if they had just a little bit of training in their senses. They just can't see it. In order to be useful in helping our sheep in conflict, we must be discerning. But discernment is is lacking. It's just not here. Discerning, discernment requires training of our senses. There's a there's an old saying that we use a lot, in the land of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. And we like to say, in the land of the undiscerning, the partially discerning man is a monster. Because whoever sees the one who has some discernment is like running from them because they realize that they're going to have someone who's going to assess their lives by the training of their senses and see what their need is spiritually. And that person in our culture is monstrous because he's going to do what? He's going to judge. He's going to judge. And in order to care for our sheep in conflict, we have to be able to judge. How many of you have children? How many of you have children where you had some experience of conflict between them? How many of you had children with conflict that you just determined you would never play the role of the judge? Now, I'll raise my hand. I didn't always determine it. But how many times I didn't do the work I was supposed to do with my children? And you know that's true of you also right? Not categorically true. But we are discerning and therefore we judge. And judges, for people who don't want to be judged, they're not fun people to be around. I'll give you a a short story from not long ago, a man, not his real name, a man named Tom. 
And I was talking to him, and he was giving me a quick version of his life in the church over the past few years. And then from the earliest point, how they went to church, how he met his wife, how he became her second husband. And so this was a condensed kind of Cliff Notes version of his life he was giving me. How he met his wife, how he became her second husband, and how six months after they were married, their first child was born, and how they've been learning about what kind of church they ought to go to ever since, right? Now, do you see what I see is followed by Maybe, which one comes first? Do you hear what I hear, right? Did you hear what I heard? What did you hear? Six months later. Now, I'm not a doctor. (laughs) But I know something went on there. And here's something else I know. I know that that man didn't insert that phrase for no purpose. He wanted something from me. Right? How many of you hear phrases like that and you go, ugh? All of us. We just go, ugh. Okay. That's out there. And we don't want to deal with it because we know but then that's not the biggest problem. The biggest problem is how many of us are hearing phrases like that day after day after day after day, but we're not hearing them. We don't actually hear the phrase itself. We don't actually think about what's being told to us as we have someone in front of us talking about their lives and what they need. You watch a 10-year-old daughter listening to her father, and you see her this way, She's listening, and he may be lecturing her, and then all of a sudden she turns around and she goes. Do you see what I see? Right? You know something is amiss, and there has to be work work done, and that there's already conflict, and that you need to be involved in this conflict. Do you see what I see? We don't see because we don't want to take responsibility. You know, uh, Tim is excellent about seeing things, every kind of things, even the things just drive me crazy. How could you see that? You know, there's a speck of dust on the window because he's a window cleaner, right? But, you know, we have, you have something on, on the ground outside the church. It might be a wrapper uh, from a popsicle, And so you're walking from your car, and you've got your briefcase, your backpack, or whatever you carry, and you're going toward the building, and there's the popsicle wrapper. And you're like, you know you have to divert maybe 15 feet, maybe 50, to to get that popsicle wrapper, but you just think, I don't see that. Now you walk right on by. (laughs) And then the next thing you see is, uh, uh, the next day you come by, and you see a crushed... uh, cup from Starbucks, right? And that's bigger than the popsicle wrapper, and you notice it, and you're thinking, okay, I wonder who's having Starbucks, but you don't really see it, because then you'd have to divert to pick up that. The next day you come by, and there, lying in all of its glory, nicely wrapped, is uh, a nice uh, uh, ages, uh, or or weight... uh, um, eight to ten pounds, Pampers diaper, closed up, wrapped up, and shut, or maybe not quite shut, with the tape, one tape undone, laying there on the ground. Okay? Now, has that risen to to catching your attention? Why don't you stop to pick up the diaper? Or why do you? It's finally hit you. This has gone too far. But that's not the reality. The reality is we don't see because we don't want to take responsibility. We know that in order to stop and take responsibility for what we see, we're going to be put out some way. It's going to be a little difficult. And so this is what Jesus is talking about in Luke 10 when he talks about the man who fell in among robbers. So what happens is the man is left for dead, 
And a priest goes down the road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And then a Levite goes down the road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. But the Samaritan sees him, and you know the story. I don't have to recount it to you. Binds the wounds and takes care of him. He takes responsibility. But then you say, well, you're talking about not seeing, and it's clear right there in the text that they, the priest and Levite saw the man laying on the road, right? Well, they did. But you think later, if asked by the right person, in the right context, say, did you see that guy out there laying there bloody by the road yesterday? If asked by the right person, do you think the priest and the Levite would say, no, I didn't see that guy. They weren't responsible for him. They saw him but they didn't see him because they would not take responsibility. We have to see what we see. We have to take responsibility. We have to have discernment. We have to own it. We have our our sheep around us all the time, and we see the conflicts that are among them, and we have to take responsibility for them. We don't just say, okay, that's not, I'm busy. I'm busy. I'm important. I'm important. I've got to take, I've got things I've got to do. I've got this to get to. I've got that to get to. And I'll tell you, sometimes I'm walking by something and I just, I just, I sin and I just feel like the, like the, the fish line and the hook just hooks me and, and it's pulling me and I say no. And I just keep walking. And it's wicked. And sometimes I feel that hook, and I feel it pulling, and I say, okay, I'll take responsibility. And this is our lives. We have to see what we see. We have to take responsibility. Sometimes we don't see because we're naive. And we're naive because we don't believe in depravity. We refuse to see the obvious motives of our sheep in their conflict and address them. Um... I am often surprised when I hear about people's sin. Anybody get surprised when you hear about people's sin? You did what? But you don't say it. Right? Oh, I can understand. Let me hear your confession. Right? No. We're surprised. And we're stupid. Because we don't believe in depravity. We don't believe in corruption. We don't, you know... Uh, beauty is only skin deep, but depravity goes clear to the bone. Okay? And we don't believe it. And so when we get to the text in James 4, where we're we're talking about the the quarrels and conflicts among us, and then what he says is what? You lost! You're envious! You only ask because you want to spend it on your own pleasures. And he's, he's just firing, firing, firing at motives and firing at the reality of the depravity that's just pervasive in our lives and hearts. But we don't believe in depravity. And so we're surprised. Our people don't believe in depravity. They don't believe in their own depravity. And so when we're clearing off the the dirt and the debris and trying to find bedrock, we're always clearing down to say to them, you know, you, we hear it said uh, all the time that you're worse than you think you are. You know, you're worse than you think you are. You guys ever heard that? You ever said it? Sure. I mean, I remember saying uh, to someone who said that they, that they weren't as good as this person, and I said, that's not your problem. The problem is that God says you're going to be compared to him. Not to them. Guess what? <laughs> you got a big problem. But God has made a solution for you. And so we don't believe in it. And our people, we introduce them to their depravity, and they say, wait a minute. What are you accusing me of? You lust. Well, that's pretty strong. But we don't believe it. So we'll never get to the point of saying to them, you lust. 
the honesty that we need to bring to people to tell them their sins, and then to say, go and stop it. The second category I want to talk about is pedal to the metal. And you see that I spelled, I spelled it. Okay. So, okay. If, if firing squads were, com, were composed of, comprised? Help the boy. Of reformed pastors. Can you imagine the inhuman treatment of the guy who is going to be killed? The cruel and unusual punishment? Ready! Aim! Ready! Aim! Ready! We don't have the luxury of waiting until everything is perfect. We just don't have that luxury. Our work, there's just too much work to do. I mean, every second of every day, we need to be pulling the trigger. And, and what I like to say is that we need to, we need to make our aim by tracer bullets. You just keep pulling the trigger and, oh, okay. I see where that one's going. Because the fact is, this is the world we're in. This is the world we're in. And God doesn't want ready, aim, ready, aim, ready, aim. He has a parable about that. We buried it in the ground. We knew you were demanding, you were exacting. We buried it in the ground. Well, to hell with you, is what he says. To hell with you. But if you take a risk, you will see a return. You have to pull the trigger. The people are being devoured or about to be devoured. They're not going to wait. They're not going to give you an invitation. You cannot wait until they give you an invitation to be involved. They're not going to give you one. Would you please come? We're having a conflict. Would you please come and intervene? That happens a lot, doesn't it? And then after you meddle, they're going to thank you. They're just going to thank you. Well, they might thank you eventually. Or they might resent you for a long time. We've had occasion to have people who have been a part of our church years later send us an email and saying to us, you know, when you did that, I I just... I couldn't understand it. I couldn't believe that you had, and why did you? And I just, I'm thinking all those thoughts, and now I've come to this point in my life, and I've realized that's what I should have followed, that advice, that word, that thing I should have followed way back then. I was an idiot. That's a wonderful letter, right? Rarely it happens, but it does happen. You can't, await, you can't wait until you're invited to address the conflict. You have to step in. I think this is probably the most difficult thing. I, when we have pastors come here, you know, Tim Bailey has often used the illustration because he had done so much work in his life in cleaning businesses, right? And he often uses the illustration to ref, uh, about this by saying, uh, when I clean a bathroom, I always start with the toilet. Let's get the dirty job done right away, right? Well, we think about how you get people to take initiative and meddle. And I say meddle, you know what I'm saying, right? It's not the 
negative, negative connotive. I'm creating a positive connotation to the word meddle. And I'm saying this is being responsible for people. It's to meddle. It's, it's meddling because that's how they'll perceive it. What's it your business? But if you don't get in there and get busy cleaning the toilet, it's going to be a real problem. And what's going to develop is going to be horrific. And this is probably one of the most important things we ever convey to. It certainly is a primary lesson in my life that we ever convey to young pastors and leaders and elders is pedal to the metal. Get at it. Step in. Start the work. It won't get done unless you start. Okay, now I have a cartoon. I like the far side. Toby uh, invited you to read a lot of books. I would... <laughs> the woods were dark and foreboding, and Alice sensed that sinister eyes were watching her every step. Worst of all, she knew that nature abhorred a vacuum. Can you all see it? Okay. I think Aristotle is the one they say uh, attributed that you can get rid of Alice now because then, thank you. Well, I don't know if you can now without putting up the next one. Leave her up there. There you go. Those guys are tricky. They're versatile. Nature abhors, abhors a vacuum. Um, if you read about this a little bit, I don't remember what branch of science we're talking about, but they try to make a perfect vacuum. And, you know, the, probably the guy that's come closest is that auric guy, honestly. They try to make a perfect vacuum where there's nothing in it. So what's the problem that they have? I don't need a vacuum cleaner. So what's the problem that they have? Sneaky little particles. Sneaky little particles that go flying right through the container into the space that, the, the, uh, that they're trying to create as the vacuum. They just can't keep these neutrinos or whatever they are from flying everywhere. Okay? And so the, the particles... So Aristotle, he's not talking about that kind of thing, but he's just saying nature abhors a vacuum. But the reality is when they try to make a perfect vacuum, they can't keep things out of it. If they could get everything out, stuff would just start flying in. Because nature is busy, right? Well, you've heard uh, leadership training people say the same thing about leadership. Leadership uh, abhors a void. Have you guys ever heard that before? Leadership abhors a void. Well, the next uh, lead or be lunch, okay? Lead or be lunch. Because, well... Okay, I'll tell you a story. The story is told of a man flying in a hot air balloon who realizes he's lost. He reduces height and spots a man down below. He lowers the balloon and shouts, Excuse me, can you tell me where I am? The man below says, Yes, you're in a hot air balloon hovering about 30 feet from this field. You must be in information technology, says the balloonist. You must work in it. I do, says the man. How did you know? Well, says the balloonist, everything you've told me is technically correct, but it's of no use to anyone. <laughs> the man below says, you must work in management. I do, replies the balloonist, but how did you know? Well, says the man, you don't know where you are or where you're going, but you expect me to be able to help you. You're in the same position as you were before we met, but now it's my fault. <laughs> Now, who got eaten for lunch? You can't take this too far. But you understand that there has to be someone who steps in. Have you ever been in a group of people that a job needs to be done? Have you ever done a funeral? Have you ever gone to a funeral home? You're at a funeral home. It isn't the time with a family that's mourning for you to be a chaplain. If you're at the funeral home, it's time for you to be the leader. They have enough stuff to do. And if you don't know the business that you should be about, you can find out. You can get 
schooled in what you should do if you're at the funeral and if you're in the funeral home with the family and they're making plans. But they want somebody who's going to be a leader. They don't want somebody who's saying, uh, I don't know, uh, what do you think? Huh. Well, maybe, maybe well, I've heard that people do this. And they need somebody who knows what they're about, who can say, no, this is what we need to do. I don't want you to think about this. These are the decisions you need to make. Here's what I would suggest to you. Here are some choices. And if you're a godly pastor, you ought to be starting by saying, I'm going to control what's said. Because this is about life and death. There's no greater time for people where they're captive to hearing the truth about the state of their eternal souls and then when they're there dealing with death right in front of them. A leader. But if you're not there, somebody's going to step in. I'm just telling you, somebody will step in. It might be the funeral director that comes in and or it might be the aunt that comes in and then I want to say a few words and then we'll have everybody stand up one at a time and they'll all talk about Uncle Bobby and, and oh man, it's going to be awful. All right. <clears throat> when Moses came down from Mount Sinai, um, his face shone because he had been in the presence of God. His face shone. So much so that what does the scripture say about the people? They were frightened. They were frightened. Well, I like to say that this is a good example of a man in authority bringing the glory of God down to people. Now, if we have a responsibility to lead, if we have a responsibility to step in and be useful in the conflicts with the people of our church, we better be able to do it with authority. Authority. The man is the glory of God. The woman is the glory of man. What does that mean? It's all about authority. It's all about hierarchy. It's all about what we do to be pleasing to God. It's all about... And so what happens in a situation where man brings glory to God... uh, uh, Husbands, have have you ever been in a place in your home where you... uh, um, What's the word? You exercised command authority. Do you know what I mean by that? Do you ever have a time in your marriage or with your children where you remember exercising command authority and everybody kind of went, ooh. Everybody. Now why? All right, take it out of the home. Have you ever seen a policeman on the side of the road and he's, and he's directing traffic, and I'll go up here a little bit, and, and, and so he's like this, like this, like this, and you come along and you're little rubbernecking little stuff, you know, oh, what's going on here? And he points at you and he goes, Vroom. and you go, ooh. And you, you go, <laughs> right? Where does it come from? What is he drawing on? Well, the authority in his in his pocket is God's authority. God gives all authority to governments, to policemen, to city councils, to husbands, to fathers. God is the one who disperses authority. And so when we exercise command authority, we bring the mantle of God's glory down to where it's seen. And sometimes it's obvious and sometimes it's not. You don't think about God's, God's glory when you see a policeman telling you to go like that. But let me tell you something. You are seeing God's glory manifest because it's his structure, his giving of authority. Glory isn't 
uh, a halo of our merit. It's not, that's not what glory is. Glory is the mantle of God's glory coming down. That's what rested on Moses. It wasn't Moses' merit that came down off the mountain with him. It was the glory of, of his exposure to the, the holy living God. And the people were scared. He didn't even talk and they were scared. I see young men and they come into my house or they come into the church and they've got their hats on. And I have, a, I have this old uh, Arthurian King Arthur legend book. You know, right? I don't have it anymore. I remember reading it when I was a kid. And one of my favorite stories was... Uh, when Arthur wanted to be around Guinevere, he had Merlin conjure him up a magical hat. And when he put the hat on, if you ever heard this story, it's, he puts the hat on and it immediately transforms him, transforms him and he looks like a, a beggarly kind of gardener, earth worker, right? And so Guinevere is in his presence at some point out in the garden and she says to him, why aren't you taking your hat off in my presence? And he says, please forgive me, your majesty. Your servant hath an ugly spot upon his head. Right? So what do I do to young men when I see them in church with a hat on? I go up to them and I say, certainly thou hast a, an ugly spot upon thine head. And they go, what? Right? Take your hat off. Take off your hat. You're worshiping with the people of God. But man, how many of us, we don't even have to go to 1 Corinthians and talk about covering and uncovering. How many of us are figuratively wearing head coverings everywhere we go? Because we never have the glory of God resting on us. Because we have rebelled and failed and disobeyed and abdicated and left that glory behind, and we bring God and his character into disrepute because we have not been what we were supposed to be. It's true of women also, but men were first. First. First with men. Are you wearing a head covering? Everywhere you go, are you wearing a head covering? You go into the funeral home, are you wearing a head covering? You work with your wife and children, are you wearing a head covering? Are you at work? Are you out in, the, out in the marketplace? Are you wearing a head covering? Do you follow what I'm getting at? Okay. Egalitarian, egalitarianism versus patriarchy. Diversity versus authority. Everything today is about diversity. Everything is about diversity. It's, it's what we celebrate today. But it is the counterfeit for authority. It says there are differences, right? Diversity says there's differences. Let's celebrate. Yay! Shoot off the rocket. Diversity, differences. But did you notice all the differences are horizontal? Right? Oh, you can be different, just you can't be different vertically. And God doesn't operate that way. He is ever so much more diverse because he operates in the world of both vertical and horizontal differences and it's under the, the, the giving, the mantle of his authority and his glory in his creation. And when we don't act in that place, we're in rebellion. And we're bringing poor reputation on God. I was thinking about uh, the passage from Philippians 2. Um, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And I never thought about this till I was preparing this, and I thought, okay, so everybody's, we all talk about this. Yeah, those hardened sinners, they're going to bow their knees, Right? We know we're going to bow our knees too, right? The difference is we better have been bowing them, bending our knees before that day. But what are those hardened sinners going to be doing when they say, Jesus Christ is Lord? 
it's not a sterile statement. It's not a statement made just with no meaning. They're going to be on their knees and they're going to be saying and confessing, Jesus Christ is Lord. Oh no! I'm a woman! Oh no! I'm a man! Oh no! I'm a citizen! I'm a child. And the reality of the hierarchy and the authority of God is going to come down on them and his glory is going to come down on them and they're going to say, Oh! Jesus is Lord! It's going to be really different. Really different. We try to suppress the truth in our lives all this time. And we've worn our metaphorical, metaphorical head coverings. And they're all going to be removed, men. And we've said that our heads are bare. <clears throat> and we're all going to feel the covering of God so that the angels don't look on something so abhorrent as the reviling of a woman who says no to God. Do you see? How do we operate in disputes and quarrels with our people if we have no authority? We have to have authority to command. We have to be committed to prosecuting what we get involved with Tulis completion, a quote by Samuel Johnson, the resolution of the combat is seldom equal to the vehemence of the charge. He that meets with an opposition which he did not expect loses his courage. We have to prosecute till the end. We have to go the whole nine yards. We see this when we work with women whose, whose children have been abused or who have been abused themselves, and they come to us. Well, I'm thinking of one case in recently where we had a woman whose children, she was sure, she had been abused herself as a child, this I knew, but she was sure her husband, she wasn't a part of our church, but she came down here because of connections in the church, she was sure her husband was abusing her son sexually. I was sure, hearing her report, that her husband was abusing her son sexually. And I sat down with her and the people that she was being helped by, and I said to her, listen, if you're going to start down this road, you have to prosecute it all the way to the end. I'll walk it with you. But you have to prosecute this all the way to the end, because once you open up the door, if you turn back, the destruction on your lives and the lives of your children is, is ten times greater. And she turned back after a few weeks. Pressures from her family. Pressures from the man who had abused her as a child. Of all people. We must be committed to prosecute because the reality is it was hard for her. I knew it would be hard for her. I don't even, I can't begin to understand the difficulty of that. Of that. Living through that. But at the same time, it's, it's going to be difficult for us because everybody's going to say, you're this, you're that, you're a tyrant, you're this and that, the other thing, and we're, it's going to be difficult. We're going to be accused. Are we going to walk the whole distance with them? Let me tell you something. You get involved in sexual abuse, nobody handles that perfectly. Okay? But if you're not willing to walk the distance... Souls will be destroyed and devoured. Conflicts in families will just explode. And you have to go the distance. I was, in, uh, I was 22 years old when I was called to be a youth pastor at a Wesleyan church in Flint, Michigan. Flint First Wesleyan. And at the time I was there, the choir director... Oh, you've heard of it, Stephen? It <laughs> yeah. sounds like a powerful name, doesn't it? As at, at the time I was there, the, 
the choir director ordered choir robes, red, red choir robes. And what ensued was this horrible, horrible fight, conflict, quarrel. People left the church. Red choir robes? And the pastor stood by, and it just got, it just happened. Just stood by. People were being devoured and devouring one another, and he just stood by. He did not work to prosecute. You've all seen situations where people have become bitter. You've all had to deal with the root of bitterness in their hearts. You've all had to work to try to tell them to get rid of this root of bitterness. You have to be careful, especially with with wives and mothers, because um, women remember. Men just don't remember things. But women do remember things. And it's easy for them to be bitter about things that don't even happen to them. They just happen to their husband or their children. And they'll be very, very bitter, right? Men aren't like that. You know, men, men like a good fight. That concept is an oxymoron to women, really. Good fight. My favorite movie has a scene in it where at the end where two men who's just had an hour-long brawl where teeth were knocked out are walking arm-in-arm home singing a song drunk. And they're the best friends in the world. And I just love that scene, right? Not for the drunkenness, okay? But I love it because that's how men are. A good fight makes us closer. We cannot allow bitterness to grow. We cannot allow bitterness to take over the hearts of people. Sins that are past, and you have to keep managing it because one of the things about bitterness is that once there's been a wound, even if the wound is closed, uh, time can bring on something that brings back the wound and suddenly the bitterness springs up again. There just seems to be, there seem to be some hearts that are just good soil for bitterness and we just can't. We have to tend it. Watch over them. Now, you've, are you monitoring this, sister? How is, that, how is your heart? Is that forgiveness still covering? And you can see them immediately, the look on their face, whether there's, there is or isn't. You can just see it. They'll, their eyes might go down, a little grimace. Or they'll say... And then they'll smile. I know how I am, yeah, yeah. Here you're reminding me again. Number four, sit back and enjoy the ride. Because when you deal with people, they're going to end up telling you things like, I'm not angry. I'm just frustrated. (laughs) I'm not angry. Why is that vein on your forehead standing out that way? That's my frustration vein. And this is the ride. Once you start into it, this is what you're going to hear. I'm not angry. How did you find out? How did you find out? It's like Paul could be a thousand miles away and say, yeah, uh, listen, by the way, uh, urge Iodia and Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. Right? How did he find out? Who told Paul? Mary put it on Facebook. It's like we're so stupid. People don't know we're fighting. But this is what, you'll, what will happen as you're engaging in conflict, constantly. Are you accusing me? Are you accusing me? Well, yeah. Yeah, I'm accusing you. You're trying to say that my motives are bad. Well, yeah. Get ready for the ride.
Do conflicts come out of immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these? Yeah. Use God's word. Use God's word. Speak God's word to them. It's interesting when you have somebody say to you whose father was a pastor, grandfather was a pastor, husband's a pastor, and you say something from God's word and they say, where does it say that? And I had that happen to me. I just laughed. Where does it say that? Number five, stick a fork in it, it's done. Stick a fork in it, it's done. How do you process the ending of a certain conflict? Well, listen, there's no textbook ending. This isn't happen. It's not clean, it's messy, it's bloody, it's difficult. Conflict has to be worked through. And you want to make sure in the end that the combatants actually suture shut the wounds. And I tell this story all the time, many of you have heard it before. Um, when my daughter, who turned 18 on Monday, was six, I took she and a friend from the church here to uh, a circus that was being held. I mean, it was one of those circus pages circuses, so it was like real chintzy, you know, they have a... I mean, you're sitting right there, and you smell nothing but motorcycle fumes and lion urine. This is the, the circus, right? They're all right there. There's an elephant you can climb up on, get down off. And so I get in, the parking's horrific, and so across the street is my insurance agent's office. They have a huge parking lot, and I just say to myself, well, listen, it's my privilege. It's my privilege to park there. So I pulled in there, parked my car, went across, set the two girls down, got ready to enjoy the show, and then pretty soon an announcement comes over the loudspeaker, if you're parked in the insurance agent's across the street, your car is going to be towed, so please go and move your car. Go as quickly as you can and move your car. Oh, was I angry. I was angry. And so I thought, what do I do? Well, the girls were seated. There were some families right around them. I said, no, you don't move from this spot. You stay right here. Because getting them in and out was going to be difficult. So I was angry about having to do that and have to live with, live with the tension of the girls being there in front of the lions by themselves, right? <laughs> and then I go out. And the, and the insurance agent's office is up on a hill, so I'm walking up the hill, and she's standing out there with somebody else, and I know her, she's tall and blonde, and I'm looking at her, and I'm just grousing. I, and, you, and, I'm a, and, I work, and I'm a customer here. And I'm just grousing. And I get in my car, and I go park in some ditch, and I get back in, and I sit down. The girls are still alive. I sit down next to the girls, and what? Oh, no. And I think, what am I going to do? Well, I'm, I don't want to leave the girls again. I think I'll do it as soon as it's over. It's over. It's Friday. The, the, the office is closed. I've got all weekend to go, right? And I made a deal with God. I'll go first thing on Monday. I'll take communion. I'll go first thing on Monday. I took communion. And I went first thing on Monday. I went into her office. And I walked up to her desk. And now the desks are in these, you know, it's this open setting with cubicles around a, a center of a room. And I, I said, can I talk with you for a minute? She said, sure. And I said, I'm the guy who was grousing and yelling at you coming up the hill. And you could tell right away what was her response immediately. No, 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 no. I, I need to come and ask you to forgive me for doing what I did. Oh, no, no, that's nothing. That's nothing. And I looked at her again, and I said, listen, I just, I need you to forgive me for this. This was an awful thing that I did. Would you forgive me? Oh, no, no, it's nothing. Finally, I said, listen, I've come to here to ask you to forgive me. I sinned against you. Well, she knew that I was going to, I was going to persist. And so then she looked into my eyes. And we did the work. Okay? 
Will you forgive me? Yes, I forgive you. I tell people it's like taking somebody after you've stuck a knife into their thigh, taking them and looking together into the knife hole in the, in the leg and, and together with sutures, closing it up and ending it, right? Why doesn't anyone want to do that work? Why does she say, no, 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 no? Why? Why, why wouldn't you want to? Do you ever think about it? You don't want to because if you look down into that hole, guess what you see? You see all the times you've, you've stabbed people. We none of us like to look into that place. And I had a good time with that woman doing something spiritual and useful. Okay? You're dealing with conflict with the people in your church. You have to come to an end, and you have to make sure that the wounds get sutured. And I tell people, you watch people all the time, and they go to one extreme or the other. They don't want any, no, 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 everything's okay. Or the other extreme is, you know, I'm late for the meeting. Sorry, I'm late for the meeting. Oh, I forgive you. I'm late for the meeting. You know, you don't have to forgive me for being late to the meeting. Your, your, your proportion's off. Okay? I socked you in the face. Then you can forgive me. Right? But you want to make sure that when it's necessary, people look at one another and do that exchange. Will you forgive me for that? Yes, I'll forgive you. And maybe both of them have to say it. And both of them give forgiveness. You know, forgiveness belongs to God. I think all forgiveness belongs to God. So when the servant comes in the parable and he says, uh, please, please forgive me, and the, and the uh, uh, master forgives him a million-dollar debt, and then he walks out and he finds another servant who owes him a hundred bucks, and he shakes him, for, pay it up. And, and, and the guy says the same thing he said, please forgive me. And he says, no, and he turns him over to the jailers. Whose money was the hundred, who, who owned the hundred bucks? Who did it belong to? It was the master's money. And the master had liberally given forgiveness, and the, and the servant would not do the same. And so the master calls him back in after he hears about it, and he says, look, you're going to the block to be sold. And all of your debt comes back on your head. And it's a pretty serious thing, as it is through the entire New Testament, the issue of forgiveness and unforgiveness. It's very, very serious. God owns forgiveness. Jesus purchased all forgiveness. We negotiate in the forgiveness that belongs to God. And if we refuse it, God won't give forgiveness to us. All forgiveness belongs to God. And now as they come to the end, I thought, okay, how do you end this? So the last is this category, wash, rinse, and repeat. Okay? Now what does this mean? Well, this just means do it again, and do it again, and do it again, and do it again. This is what we do. This is our lives. As pastors and elders, our work is to deal with the conflict among our people, to bring to them the gospel and the authority of Scripture and, and the work of the Holy Spirit, and to call them to repentance and faith, and to, and to call them to get along with one another. And it doesn't stop after that last time I had that meeting with those two women, and now it's all over. Repeat and repeat. And I think I just want to end by reading our, uh, I guess this is our theme passage from Second Timothy. He says, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. The time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires, 
and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. But you, be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. And I just hear just a little bit. I just hear a little bit of Paul in his years. Years and years of doing the same thing, saying the same things, walking people through the same controversies, laying the same foundations, years and years and years. And he says, for I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. We just keep doing it until we're dead. That's a privilege. That, as Toby talked about, is joy. It's a joy. Let's pray.